This morning I want to give you a word picture to take, to take with you for the rest of your life. From this day forward, I, whenever you find yourself in trouble, big or small, I, I, wanna, I want you to have this picture in the, in the back pocket of your mind. From this day forward, whenever you have your back to the wall of life, whenever it feels like your entire world is falling apart, I want to give you this, this word picture to, di, to, to, di, to directly access in your mind and heart when you need hope or when you need strength or when you need faith in God. And the word picture comes from the book of Exodus. This is the word, and this is the word picture. An entire army of Egyptians with chariots are chasing you in the wilderness. They back you into a corner. In front of you, there's a giant army. Behind you looms a large sea, and there's, it seems like there's nowhere to go. It feels hopeless, like all is lost. You want to give up on life. You, you, you even feel like giving up on God. And then the sea suddenly behind you parts in half, and you begin to walk through this giant sea. There's a, there's a large wall of water on your right hand and on your left. You, you cross the sea on dry ground. And after you cross, the, the large army follows you, but when they try to cross, the walls of water come crashing down upon them. When you get to the other side of the sea, on the seashore, you see all the Egyptian soldiers and their chariots and their horses washed up every single one of them dead. God has delivered you. This is the word picture I want to give, I want to give you this morning. But I'm going to give you more than that. In Psalm 34, I'm going to give you a, th a theology behind that word picture. A theology written in the form of a beautiful Hebrew poem. Today we are back in the Psalter. The Psalms, as you know, is God's inspired songbook. It's a book of poems written as praise songs for the nation Israel. The kind of poetry contained within this book is like any body of literature in the world. It lyricizes the epic works of God. It remembers and celebrates the past. It prophesies the future. The Psalms interpret the present while at the same time revealing the nature of, and character of God. Many of the Psalms are written by Israel's greatest king, whose line of descent goes back through, through Judah to, 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 to Abraham, to Shem, to Noah, to Adam, whose descendant is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But even more than that, the Psalter is the very word of the living God. Throughout the history of the church, the Psalter has been a beloved book enjoyed by generation after generation of believers. The only commentary Charles Spurgeon ever wrote and finished was a commentary on the Psalms. Why do we love the Psalms so much? Well, we love the Psalms because we encounter God face to face in a, in a raw, in a pure way. As one uh, theologian affirmed, we learn that knowing God is not a means to something else. One commentator said this about the Psalms, only a Philistine could fail to love the Psalms. And finally, James Hamilton said this about the Psalms, the Psalms are true history, fulfilled prophecy, and enduring praise. The book of Psalms is a school of prayer, a fountain of truth, and a revelation of God himself. 
We will not master this book, but oh, that it might master us, becoming the pulse to which our hearts beat, the soil in which our souls take root. And so this morning, we're going to study Psalm 34. The first 33 psalms are on our website if you want some more exposition from this book. And the psalms are one of two books, that, uh, the other being Proverbs, that I teach uh, and preach through consecutively, but in a staggered sort of way. So after finishing a, a New Testament book, I, I'll usually spend a few weeks continuing my staggered exposition through the Psalter, psalm by psalm, for, for two or three Sundays at least, before we move, to, move on to a, another New Testament book. And instead of jumping all around the psalms, and sometimes I do that, I usually like to go in consecutive order according to the canonical order we find in our Bibles, because like every other book in the Bible, the psalms are purposely uh, 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 arranged. They're purposefully arranged and ordered. Each psalm builds on and interprets one another. Every new psalm I preach is a little easier to grasp than before because of all the psalms before it that have given me new information to, to build on for the next psalm. That means if you don't think this exposition of Psalm 34 is very good, just wait till I get to Psalm 150. And you just have to stay here for 20 years to, to hear, hear that final one. What is Psalm 34 about in a nutshell? In Psalm 34, David writes to encourage God's people in the midst of trials that a final exodus is coming when you will never have to suffer again. David's deliverance here as the king of God's people within the promise and plan of God is the assurance that you and I will one day be delivered from all pain and sorrow forever. David wants to give us a word picture from the book of Exodus. David wants to give us a theology of deliverance behind this word picture from Exodus in order to strengthen our hearts whenever troubles come our way. So with that said, let me read Psalm 34 for you. Let's start with the subscript right below that before verse 1. David writes of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech so that he drove him away and he departed. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My boast will, my soul will make its boast in Yahweh. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. I inquired of Yahweh and he answered me and delivered me from all that I dread. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be humiliated. This poor man called out, and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints, for there is no want to those who fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who inquire of Yahweh shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. Who is the man who delights in life and loves many days that he may see good? Guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. 
The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of Yahweh is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the evils against the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Yahweh redeems the soul of his slaves, and all those who take refuge in him will not be condemned. The subscript here in Psalm takes us back to 1 Samuel 21, when David, uh, as a young man, was running away from King Saul. Uh, David uh, flees to the land of the Philistines, to the city where Goliath was from, the city known as Gath. The king of Gath there is named Ashish, and, and David uh, writes, uses the name Abimelech, and, and, and he, that was probably a, a formal title for the kings of the Philistines. We saw that name in Genesis 20 when Abraham lied to Abimelech about his uh, Sarah being his sister. And so David is in Gath, and he, he's no doubt afraid, he's afraid for his life because he killed Goliath, after all, the, the champion of Gath. He even brings Goliath's sword with him for some reason, and when he gets there, the, the Philistines convince the king of Gath, Ashish, that, that David is a threat to his kingdom. And so David, sensing the opposition mounting against him, is so afraid of his life being taken away, he pretends to be crazy. He runs away from Gath. And so 1 Samuel 21 uh, tells us this story, but Psalm 34 is the prayer that David made during this ordeal. So what does the subscript have to do with the rest of Psalm 34? What is the connection? Well, commentators don't seem to know why, but if you know the the theme of Exodus that that is running through this psalm, I, I think it's pretty obvious. Because Gath is where? 1 Samuel 27 says Gath was in the country of the, of the Philistines. Where is that? Gath is where Israel was in Egypt in the book of Exodus. Gath is where Israel was in Babylon for 70 years. Where is David in Gath? David is, he's in exile. He's in exile. And Psalm 34 is a prayer for those waiting to be delivered by God in exile. See, as believers, the kingdom of Christ may be in our hearts, but we're still waiting for the kingdom of Christ to be the actual world that we live in. This world is not our home. We're still in exile, waiting for the kingdom to come. We're aliens. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, for our, our citizenship is in heaven. We still live in Egypt. We still live in Babylon. Our earthly king is still Pharaoh. Our king is still Nebuchadnezzar. Our king is still Abimelech, the king of Gath, the king of the Philistines. Have you ever been to a foreign country? You go and you notice things, and they're just not the same as where you're from. The problems, your home country or home city or or home state, uh, they don't have those problems. And, And it doesn't bother you so much because you know you're in this 
foreign place for only a couple of weeks. You're able to endure, you're able to put up with these new differences because they're temporary. Maybe it's a new city you're visiting for the weekend. And, you, and so you put up with the deficiencies of the place because it's only for a few days. When I was in New York City for a, a few months ago, for a few days last year, I mean, there, the traffic and the double parking just was driving me crazy. And so when I came back to Northern Virginia, it was so wonderful to be able to drive 10 miles within 15 minutes instead of an hour or two. Years ago, I kind of say that we went, we, my wife and I were in Paris, and Paris is a wonderful city to visit, but there are no public bathrooms in Paris. There's like two public bathrooms you can use, and when you fi finally find them, like a hidden treasure, there's this long line that you have to wait in, and you have to pay money to get into it. This is what it's like to live in a foreign land as, a, as an exile. Broken relationships, Murphy's Law kind of days, what can go wrong will go wrong kind of weeks, wayward children, disease and sickness, loneliness, people who hate you for no reason, traffic jams, stress, crime, death, a society degenerating right before our eyes. This is not our home, folks. We're in exile. The peace that Christ gives us in our hearts does not correspond with the absence of peace around us in our world. The joy in our hearts is not found in the world we live in. The love in our hearts is not the love we see in the communities that we reside in. The, the, the heaven that is in our hearts is, is not matched by the hell we see in war, zone, war zones around the world. And so David writes Psalm 34 to assure us this world is only temporary, and we're going to be delivered one day, finally and forever. We're going to be rescued one day. And so that's why he starts with prayer in verses 1 through 3. Now before we kind of get into verses 1 through 3, let me just talk a little bit about the structure of Psalm 34, the structure. It's in the form of a rough chiasm, and a, and a, rough, and a chiasm is a, is a literary sandwich where the Emphasis is, the emphasis is in the middle, and the secondary points parallel each other outside that middle. And so the, the two pieces of bread in this chiasm of Psalm 34 are verses 1 through 3. The, the idea here, the subject is praise, and verses 19 through 22, you have judgment and redemption. And the mayonnaise on each of the of the two slices of bread, imagine uh, 1 through 3 is the top slice of bread. Imagine 19 through 22 is the bottom slice of bread. And then just under that top slice of bread, verses 4 through 7 is the mayonnaise. And verses 15 through 18 is the mayonnaise on the bottom piece of bread. And verses 4 through 7 and 15 through 18 uh, both have uh, the, the same type of ideas and and, and themes uh, 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 working through this. There is a call for help in verses 4 through 7 and 15 through 18. There, there is God hearing us and there is God delivering us. And the meat in the middle, the, the emphasis of the psalm is found in verses 8 through 14, which is the tasting and seeing and the experience of the goodness of God. And so with that said, let's look at the first three verses of this chiasm with this call to corporate praise. George Zemeck, one of my favorite Bible scholars, describes the first 
uh, three verses this way. This is one of the greatest invitations in the Psalms to all the people to join together in praise. And that would make sense if, if David had visions of Exodus past and Exodus future in mind. So David is not calling for praise merely for his own personal deliverance. The basis for this invitation to praise God in verses 1 through 3 is God's deliverance from Israel, from, from the, the Pharaoh, from the world's greatest world superpower by ten plagues, by the parting of the sea, by the destruction of Pharaoh's army. David has the story of Exodus in his mind as he calls us to pray praise in verse, verses 1 through 3. The basis for David's pray, praise is, is, is his own deliverance, not as a random personal individual, but as somebody representing God's people. David's praise, this call for praise, is, 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 it's, it's from somebody who God has chosen to run all of the covenants of Scripture through, the Abrahamic, Davidic, the New Covenant, in order for all these covenants to be fulfilled, and in order for God's salvation plan to be accomplished, David has to survive. He has to live. Our spiritual lives depend on God delivering David from Abimelech in the land of the Philistines, recorded in 1 Samuel 21 and Psalm 34. The third basis for praise... And that third basis for praise is as David thinks back on the Exodus past, as David in this situation, as he is reminded that all of the major components of the Exodus are being kind of reenacted in his situation in a foreign land, he also is thinking forward to the future when he sees this final Exodus, this greater Moses delivering all of God's people once and for all. This is a call to praise for the salvation of all God has chosen to save. See, when you sing at church, remember, brothers and sisters, you're singing because God ordained all of time and history to bring about the necessary conditions for your salvation and for every person who trusts in Christ alone. The plan wasn't just to save your own soul. It was a plan in eternity past to save a body of chosen people. The plan included a universe. It included a planet that had to be created for this special elect group of people. The plan included a history of humanity, humanity as God moved 10,000 parts uh, every day for thousands of years to bring about the perfect time when Christ would come and die to pay for our sins for all those who would believe in him. The plan has included the past 2,000 years of God building his church. This plan has involved God making you and me and every believer who has ever lived, creating us, giving us life. It included giving all of us salvation and redemption and forgiveness. This plan included ordaining every everything every believer has experienced in their lives so that at the right time, every saved person in the family of God would come to faith and believe in him. Brothers and sisters, Singing is not the warm-up to the real game of the sermon. 
Singing is the evidence that we know and realize the greatness of our salvation. That's what singing songs to God in church is. See, if we grasp the glory of this salvation for this countless number of lost sinners, praise will continually be on our lips. Verse 1. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. If you can begin to wrap your mind around the glory of salvation, you will never boast in anything that you could ever do. You will, you will boast in the God who has accomplished so great a salvation. Verse 2, my soul will make its boast in Yahweh. The truth about the greatness of salvation will humble us on one hand and, and give us joy on the other. Verse 2, the humble will hear it and rejoice. And when we all realize the greatness of our salvation together in Christ, that will make us want to say to each other, verse 3, Oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt His name together. David calls us to praise God in verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 4 through 7, David begins to explain why we should praise Him. Why should we praise Him? Point number three, praise Yahweh for David's deliverance. See, when David was in Gath, when he realized that his life was in danger, he pretended like he was insane before King Ashish. Maybe David wanted to assure the king that he wasn't a national threat. Maybe David wanted to leave Gath unhindered by the king who would no longer consider a crazy man a danger to his power and authority. So 1 Samuel 21.13 says this about that ordeal. So he, David, disguised his sanity in their sight and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. See, in that time when you drooled in your beard, that was considered a very shameful, humiliating thing to do. No self-respected man or king would dribble, would, would allow saliva to run down his beard. What else did David do? Well, 1 Samuel 21 in the subscript of Psalm 34 tells us he acted crazy because he was afraid. He wanted to escape this dangerous situation. But what else did he do? Verse 4, I inquired of Yahweh, and he answered me and delivered me from all that I dread. What is David trying to say here? Not that God rescued David because he acted insane. God rescued David in spite of his dumb, foolish plan. See, that, this is the point. That God rescues us in spite of our silly schemes to rescue ourselves, not because of those plans. See, when we're in trouble, we need to pray that God would deliver us in spite of ourselves, in spite of the sinful responses and sinful ways we're going to respond because he might just deliver us in spite of us. Charles Spurgeon said this about this psalm, though the, though the hook was rusty, yet God sent the fish, and we thank him for it. See, in the book of Exodus, there's a big emphasis on God's presence. In the instructions for the tabernacle, there's the table for the showbread covered by gold. It symbolized God's glory. 
the, the table for the showbread symbolized that God's presence would provide for his people. God's presence would bless his people. In, in, 30, in, in Psalm 34, verse 5, uh, David puts himself in the place of Moses when Moses beheld the backside of God's glory in Exodus 34 and came down the mountain with his face shining. Look at verse 5. They looked to him and were radiant, like Moses was, and their faces will never be humiliated. Verse 5 is in the plural, however, to communicate that one day, like Moses in Exodus, one day nobody and nothing will ever humiliate, humiliate us again. One day we will too, we too will see the Lord face to face. One day our face will shine as well. And we will never be humiliated. There's another idea in Exodus that, that helps us understand Psalm 34, and that's the idea of corporate solidarity. In Exodus, you clearly see that what happens to Moses happens to Israel. When Moses was rescued from the Nile River in a little basket, it prefigured God delivering his people from the Red Sea years later. Moses and his people are one. There is corporate solidarity with Moses and Israel. And that corporate solidarity establishes the paradigm of Jesus' future corporate solidarity with the church, where what happens to Jesus happens to his people. Jesus can die for his sin because he is one with us. And we can rise from the dead like Jesus because we are one with him. And so the idea in verses 4 through 7, and 15 through 18, is that in the same way that Moses identified with his people, David, as the king of Israel, is also in corporate solidarity with Israel as well. His deliverance, his present-day deliverance, means future deliverance for God's people. He makes this, uh, I, this connection with corporate solidarity, solidarity for Exodus. And this rescue for Israel one day in the future is not just any kind of rescue. It's going to be a rescue of, of exodus-like proportions. It will be a final exodus when Moses' shining face, because of his encounter with God's glory, will be the norm for all of God's people forever and ever. And it won't just be anybody who saves us in the end. It will be the second person of the Trinity who saves us in the end. And that's what David says in verse 7. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. In 34.7, verse 7 here, language and imagery is drawn from Exodus 14 when the angel moved in front of the camp of Israel to stand between Israel and Egypt. In Exodus, you find clear Trinitarian theology. The same angel, angel means divine being, right? The same angel who stood between Israel and Egypt in chapter 14, right before God parts the sea, is the same divine being able to forgive sin in Exodus chapter 23. And in Exodus chapter 23, God says of this angel, my name is in him. So David says in verse 7, the same second person of the Trinity, the same Jesus Christ who saved Israel in the Exodus will save you in the second Exodus when Jesus returns. 
In Psalm 34, David is not saying that God will rescue you from every problem here and now. Now, in the New Testament, we already know we don't, we, we don't kind of subscribe to that kind of naive theology, and the Old Testament doesn't either. The, prophet, the prophets were, all were persecuted. They were, they were all killed, and they were the most righteous people in Israel. So David is clearly not saying, because God rescued me, because I prayed hard enough, prayed hard enough, he'll rescue you here and today because you, 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 you prayed hard enough. No, he's saying, because God rescued me and I am one with you, and I am part of this huge plan, he will rescue you in the future, finally and forever. David, as king of Israel, one with his people, descendant of Abraham and Judah, bearer of the Davidic covenant, forefather of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be one with his people. David knows what his deliverance from a biblical act signifies. And it signifies this. God's salvation plan to finally, finally deliver all of God's people in the end is guaranteed. David's deliverance 3,000 years ago guarantees our future deliverance when Christ returns. This is what Psalm 34 is teaching. King David is looking down the annals of time when God parts the Red Sea one last final time for his people, and he says, let's praise God for that. And God is going to save us forever because he's good. But have you tasted this goodness? And we move to... Point number four, tasting the, the goodness of God. We arrive at the center of the chiastic structure of the psalm. David now invites us to join him in the personal experience of Yahweh's goodness. Look at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Christianity is doctrinal, it's theological, but it's more than that. Christianity is also experiential. Yes, we cannot experience Jesus without sound doctrine and theology, but sound doctrine and theology is more than a cerebral activity. It's not enough for us to just know in our heads that Yahweh is good. We also have to taste and see that Yahweh is good. Knowing Christ cannot be a theory that you just contemplate or you acknowledge. It must be a spiritual experience that invigorates your heart day by day. The first question and answer of this Westminster Shorter Catechism goes like this. What was the West, Westminster Catechism? Uh, it was a, a point in history, in England's, his, England's kind of a, a nation uh, where all of the divines, all of the, uh, the divines of England in cooperation with all the, ref all the Reformed churches in the rest of Europe, they came together and they established, this is what we believe, that this is what we believe that the, that the Bible teaches. And we're going to put that down on paper. And this will now be the standard for our country in England. And the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that they all agree, that all the church in Europe agreed at one time, was this. What is the chief end of man? Answer Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To enjoy him forever. In other words, we were created and saved to delight in Jesus Christ. See, whenever we're bored of God, it's not because God is boring, it's because we're just blind. 
when the gospel is, is just some facts you know in your head, you're no better than demons. Because the demons, they actually know the Bible better than us. How are true believers different from demons? Because the difference is that believers possess a love for Christ. What separates us from the devil is our delight and, and satisfaction in Christ. In Luke 8, the, the demons, they bow down before the Lord. They call him the Son of God. They're respectful. They honor him. They knew his name as the Son of God. They, they had their Christology down. But the one thing that was missing was love for him. You know that show, that, that show, uh, do you know more than a fourth grader, a third grader? And they ask third graders and they ask adults this, these, these trivia questions and a third grader so it gets the question, the adult doesn't. Well, my question is this. Do you love Jesus more than a demon? Do you love him more than a demon? You don't know more than a demon does, but do you love him? Do you love Jesus more than a demon? John Calvin says this. It will not suffice to hold that there is one whom all ought to honor and adore unless we are also persuaded that he is the fountain of every good and that we must seek nothing elsewhere than in him. For until men recognize that they owe, they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. To say it simply, Calvin is saying that unless God is your greatest joy and delight and love, you will never obey him and serve him the way he wants you to. Delight and satisfaction in God in verse 8 precedes fear and obedience to God in verses 9 through 14. Christianity is never a box you just check off. Biblical Christianity is not chalkboard Christianity. No, the gospel is this ocean of supreme delight we bask in with childlike joy. It is an oasis in the desert of this world where we find our deepest satisfaction. Delight in God is the fuel for obedience to God. And so we go from delight in God, verse 8, because of this deliverance that is coming at the end of time, to the fear of God in verses 9 through 11. Look at verse 9. O oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints, for there is no want to those who fear him. So usually we fear people because of what they can take away from us. But here in verse 9, David says the fear of God actually brings the exact opposite, that he provides every basic need for those who fear him. And that means you don't have to live like the world to have, to, to sustain your basic needs. You don't have to capitulate. You don't have to join them to, 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 to be able to live and, and have food on your table and to have a house over your head. That even though Satan is the king of this world, for believers who fear him, your basic needs will be satisfied so that you are free to worship God fully and wholly. Verse 10, he says, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger. You see, old lions, old lions, they go hungry pretty often. 
The young lions, however, they do a lot better than the old lions. But even, even young lions, even the strong, even the young, even the powerful go hungry from time to time. Not those who fear him, though. You don't have to be afraid of fearing God. You don't have to be afraid of fearing God because you think he'll take something from you. No, he will provide for your every need. What does the fear of God look like in your life? Now Davis, David wants to teach us what this fear is. Verse 11, Come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. What is the fear of Yahweh? Well first, verse 12, David redefines what the good life is. Who is the man who delights in life and loves many days that he may see good? What is the good life? What is the good life? It's not living apart from God's law. It's not maximizing every idolatrous pleasure your flesh can come up with. Your best life now, David says, is fearing God through the obedience to the word. And the the obedience looks like this, verse 13 and 14. Guard your mouth and guard your actions. Make sure the, the words you speak to your wife or your husband are always good, encouraging, loving, edifying, pure. Stop lying to people, verse 13. Verse 14, run away from sin. Obey God. Be a peacemaker. Now, 1 Peter is, is filled with second Exodus themes. Turn to 1 Peter. Now, if you pay attention sometimes when pastors preach through 1 Peter, they'll title it something like, you know, living in exile, exiles in a, you know, saints in, in the exile. And, and Peter is filled with these second exodus exilic themes. Go to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, one, he says, uh, he addresses his readers as, as exiles. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles. We go to chapter 2, verse 11, he calls his readers, uh, uh, Beloved, I urge you, he calls them sojourners and exiles. Go back to chapter 1, verse 2, he, he mentions, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedience of Jesus Christ, and to the, the sprinkling of his blood. That's a reference to Exodus 24, where the, the blood of the covenant uh, sealed sealed God's people unto obedience. In, in, in um, chapter 1, verse 18, go, go there to 1 Peter 1, 18, he says this, knowing that you were, were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct, the, the silver or gold is a reference to Exodus 20 when God had commanded the Israelites not to make idols out of silver and gold. In chapter 5, verse 13, even though uh, Peter is in Rome, he's not in Babylon, he says, verse 13, she who is in Babylon, why does he use Babylon, Babylon to emphasize this theme of exile? We're in, we're, in, we're in exile like Israel was in exile for 70 years in Babylon. And then Peter does this, chapter 3. Go to chapter 3, 10 through 12. Then he does this. He writes, the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 
He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter quotes Psalm 34. Now, if you've read the Bible before, these commands, keeping your tongue from evil, doing good, they're everywhere in the Bible. They're in the Psalms, they're in the Proverbs, they're in the Prophets, they're even in the New Testament. Why does Peter quote, from all the places he could have quoted from, why does he quote Psalm 34? Because he knows that David is talking about a second exodus. He knows David is talking about this, this, this idea, this theme of being in exile, the same theme that Peter is concentrating on. And what he does, he makes explicit the reason why we must turn away from evil, the reason why we must keep our tongues from evil. Look at verse 12. He adds the four there, the four that Psalm 34 doesn't have. And he says, this is the reason why, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Go back to Psalm 34. Why should we turn away from evil and do good? Why should we guard our tongues from evil and, and speak the truth to one another? Well, now David says, verse, verses 15 and 16, because God is for the righteous and against the evildoer. Notice in Psalm 34, 15, you don't have the four that Peter adds, so Peter makes it explicit that uh, verses 15 through 18 is, is the reason for why we fear God and obey God in verses 11 through 14. And the reason that we delight in him, the reason why we fear him, the reason why we obey him is because why? Look at verse 15. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. Sometimes my, 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 my five-year-old will be talking, you know, and then he'll say, Dad, are you listening to me? <laughs> and then what I do, I, I'll, I turn to him and I look at him. He says, yes, now I'm listening to you, right? Because he's my son, because I love him. And whatever is on his mind, whatever is on his heart, I want to I be responsive to. And that's the, this is the picture. The eyes and the ears are toward the righteous. And his ears are open to their, notice that phrase, cry for help. That same phrase is used in Exodus chapter 2.23 when the sons of Israel were, were under, under, the, under the bondage to Pharaoh and the text says they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery rose up to God. Again, Peter, I mean, again, David has this imagery of God's people suffering under Pharaoh, waiting for deliverance, waiting for the divine deliverance. And he says, don't worry, for now, for now, God will hear your cry. God will comfort you. But, for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, David writes of a different kind of face. You know, when, when your kids are, 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 are playing well, and, and they're sweet, and they're kind, and they, they talk to you, and they, and they say, Dad, and you, and you turn toward them, and you have that face with love and grace and favor. There's other times when they misbehave, and what? You turn your face, and it's a different kind of face. And it's, 
your kids know it. They know the face. Look at the face of Yahweh against evildoers, verse 16. The face of Yahweh is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. My professor shared a story about a, a heart surgeon and he performed an operation on a patient. After he, after he was done with the surgery, somebody asked him how the surgery went and the, and the heart surgeon said, you know what, it went perfect. He did everything right. He said to his friend, I, I did everything right. It was a, it was a textbook surgery. Every, every detail was performed to the highest degree. And then the doctor said this. The only problem was that he died after the surgery. Jesus said, what, is it, what does it profit a man if you, if you gain the whole world and lose his whole soul? What good is it at a funeral and everybody there, they're giving you these eulogies and they're, they're saying how great a person you were and how you, and you, you were successful and you met every career goal. You, you experienced everything the world had to offer. You, you checked off every box on your bucket list. What good is that a eulogy when you didn't go to heaven? What's the point of that? And David says it this way, verse 16. Cuts off the memory of evildoers from the earth. That when you die, after a few years, after a few decades, nobody's going to remember how successful you were. Nobody's going to care as you suffer in hell forever. Nobody's going to remember you on earth. Nobody's going to remember you in heaven. This is why we delight in God. This is why we fear God. This is why we obey God. Is there anyone, anyone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ? I invite you to open your heart. Open your heart to Jesus and he will come into you. He will live inside of you. He will forgive you. He will, live, he will give you eternal life. And, and no, life on, on earth as an exile uh, won't be easy. But, verse 17, when you cry, Yahweh will hear. Verse 18, no, it doesn't mean that as a believer, you'll, you'll never have your heart broken, but verse 18, to those who delight in Him, to those who fear Him, to those who obey Him, Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted. He's that today and tomorrow. Look at the second part is verse 17. He would deliver you out of all their troubles. In the future, he'll deliver you forever and finally. Verse 18, he'll save those who are crushed in spirit. There will be a final salvation for you. But how does he do it? How does he deliver us? And in verses 19 through 22, David tells us that God delivers his people through a perfect sacrifice. God delivers his people through a perfect sacrifice. You will experience much evil in this fallen world, but verse 19 says, one day God will deliver you out of them all. Many are the evils against the righteous. In this fallen world, you will experience many evils, but one day in the future, God will deliver you out of them all. But how does he do it? How does this deliverance 
How is it made possible? How is it accomplished? Verse 20 tells us. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. This is a quote from Exodus 12. Exodus 12 records the instructions for the Passover. On the night when God struck all the firstborn of Egypt, the Israelites were to sacrifice an unblemished lamb. They were to take the blood of that sacrifice and put it on their doorpost and, their, and, their, and the cross beam. And so when God struck all the firstborn, he would pass over the houses of his people covered by the blood of a lamb. And, and every year on that same day, God instructed Israel in Exodus 12 that in the first month of the year, they were to sacrifice a lamb as a memory of God's deliverance and exodus and as a reminder of a future perfect sacrifice who will accomplish a final exodus. Exodus 12.46 says that when you sacrifice this lamb, quote, you shall not break any bone of it. And so David quotes that verse here, verse 20. He knows the final deliverance for all of God's people is predicated on the sacrifice of this perfect lamb because Exodus tells us that. And he knows the book of Exodus. He knows that Exodus has established this paradigm for salvation, that it is the cornerstone of theology for the Bible. And so David's own rescue and exile from the king of Gath just reaffirms this paradigm of salvation laid down first in the book of Exodus. And so in Psalm 34, David, as he's being rescued Exodus style, has a vision of the future when salvation is fulfilled in this perfect lamb in a final Exodus. Verse 20 is a bridge text between Exodus 12 and, Ex- and John 19. Go to John 19 real quick. John chapter 19, and Jesus is on the cross. He is being crucified for your sins. He is being punished for your sins and mine. He is drinking the curse of sin that, that we deserve, not him. He was perfect. That's what he says in verse John 19, 28. John says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been finished, in order to finish the scripture, said, I am thirsty. The jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of, a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the, the sour wine, he said, It is finished. That means all debts are paid in full. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He he willingly relinquished his life, and he died. Verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and and that they might be taken away. So the Sabbath is, is the next day, and they don't want these dead bodies on a cross around during the Sabbath, so they ask Pilate for the guards to break the legs of those hanging on the cross. And the reason for that, because when you were dying on the cross, 
you would try to, you would keep your legs up so you could, you could breathe with your lungs. You would keep your legs up. So as you broke your legs, it would, it would take away the ability to keep your legs up, and then your lungs would collapse, and you couldn't breathe, them, breathe anymore, and you would die instantly. So the Jews are asking Pilate to do that. Pilate complies, verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with his, with his spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So to, to make sure somebody was dead, they would pierce the side of a person, and when a person dies, there's usually coagulated blood and water, and, and so they pierced the side of Jesus, and it came out, and it confirmed that he was dead. And then John says this, 35, And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may also believe. John is saying, listen, let me tell you, what I'm writing down is absolutely true. Then he says this, verse 36, For these, came, these things came to pass in order that the Scripture would be fulfilled not a bone of him shall be broken. What Exodus pointed toward, what David confirmed with his own deliverance, Jesus fulfilled. And the cross is how we are delivered finally and perfectly. Go back to Psalm 34. See, after the people of, of after Israel crossed the Red Sea, after the soldiers followed them and died as God sent the walls of water crashing down on them, this is how Moses writes about that fateful, fateful, that fateful day in Exodus 14, 30, and 31. And this is really a, a picture of the end when God does this finally for his people and against his enemies. Look at this. Thus Yahweh, listen to this, Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Then Israel saw the great hand which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, and the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and his servant Moses. That's why David spends so much time talking about the fear of Yahweh. You know, remember when God crushed all of your enemies in Exodus, he's going to do that in the future, so fear him. And so that's the picture, but the theology behind the picture is given in verses 21 and 22, the last two verses of Psalm 34. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned, but Yahweh redeems the soul of his slaves, and all those who take refuge in him will not be condemned. David concludes this psalm with this end time finality where all of God's enemies are condemned and where all of his slaves are rescued, delivered, finding refuge in him. This is what Exodus pointed toward. Everything Exodus pointed toward to this to this end of time, David summarizes in verses 21 and 22. And so there you have it. You have a, a theology in a psalm to go along 
with this Exodus word picture for your troubles today or for, or for your troubles tomorrow. And so no matter how deep you feel you're sinking under a flood of the world's troubles, let Psalm 34 remind us that we're always walking on dry ground. No matter how hard it feels, no matter how hopeless it seems, there is a wall of water on your right and there's a wall of water to your left, so just keep walking forward. Just pay no mind to that army chasing you behind you. Don't run. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Taste and enjoy the goodness of God. And tell everybody else who is supposed to enjoy this goodness of God, tell them what David tells us in verse 3. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me, and let us exalt his name together.